get into the episode, we just wanted to make you aware of some potentially triggering themes that we might cover today. Potentially triggering themes could include homophobia, HIV AIDS, themes of suicide and drug abuse. Hello and welcome to Sunday on the Pod with Casey, Flo and Rosa. Welcome to Sunday on the Pod. If you're here and you don't know what it's all about, I'm going to tell you right now. It is a podcast <laughs> all about musical theatre. However, this podcast isn't just for performers. No, no, no. It's for anybody who loves musical theatre. What are we going to be talking about, you ask? Very, very good question. We will be covering musicals that you might love. You might hate the musical we might be starting to, that we might be talking about. Maybe you've never heard it before. That is fine. But we're going to be talking about it. So sit in tight. Of course... We three do have our favourite musicals, but each episode will essentially be picking a brand new one, picking apart the genres, the writers, the eras, the styles, you name it, we're going to be singing and dancing about it. So, what are you waiting for? Sit back and enjoy the pod. And just want to say thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our first three episodes of Sunday on the Pod. We have loved bringing you our analysis and hot takes on your favourite shows, and we just really want to keep bringing you more. So the best way to support our show is by rating and reviewing us wherever you listen. We're available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and by keeping up with us on socials. So we're at Sunday on the Pod on Insta and Twitter, and you can find us on our Facebook page, which is just Sunday on the Pod. Welcome. <laughs> Hello, everyone. How are we? Good. Yeah. Recording on a Sunday, which can I just say we do not schedule like this. It's just whenever we happen to be free and it just always happens to be Sundays. <laughs> it was meant to be. Written in the stars. <laughs> Definitely written in the stars. So we have a rather exciting episode for you today. Drum roll, please. I'll let Casey tell us what it is. So this week is rent so exciting i feel like a million rent heads just screamed around the world (laughs) (laughs) and also if you don't know what rent is where have you been it's like one of the most amazing musicals ever it is the quintessential like musical for teenage girls (laughs) this and wicked the choke called on teenage theater kids yeah, it's crazy. like it's like the ultimate lip sync album like sitting on a train looking out the window <laughs> singing yeah. like glory like that is me but I just <laughs> I love it it's so good I think as well like every single like musical theater performer when you're 15 you just want to like you want to go in into an audition and just like absolutely smash like tonight or something out tonight absolutely like it's just the go-to Everyone wants to be in Rent. I I would love to know, because I know that I went through a particular Rent phase when I was young, but I would love to hear about what your Rent phase was like. When did you first discover it? How did you feel? So for me, I kind of went through my Rent phase like year 10, year 11 of high school, and I'd kind of just sort of discovered musical theatre fully I loved musicals you know like typical Oliver Annie Wizard of Oz I watched all of those when I was younger and then I kind of started entering into the new phase of musical theatre where I started actually going to watch live performances and kind of discovering things and I got the DVD of Rent I think for Christmas 
and I put it on and I was like, wow, theatre can be edgy. I think I think I was so used to I was so used to tits and teeth and like golden age musicals that this was like I was like, wow, this is really gritty. This is rock and this is grungy. Yeah. (laughs) And um yeah, proper proper got into it and had a, a really heavy phase where on the bus to college every morning I would be like lip syncing at the back of the bus. Oh yeah. <laughs> rocking out. So that was that was my that was my cheeky little rent phase. <laughs> rent is such a funny show as well because like it, like when you're young it's really cool. Like it's so cool and it's so edgy and it's so angsty. And then like I still love it now that I'm older but there it's it's not as cool I don't think no there are moments where you watch it and you're like oh god that's so cringy you're like why is it like this but you feel like you can appreciate like the the other parts of it more like the kind of impact of it and like the kind of sociocultural analysis that that he's doing like more but it definitely you are there's some bits where you're like I think it's I think it's kind of because there's so many main characters like it's a a big ensemble of of main characters I think you kind of latch on to one as well I feel Mm. like everybody sees themselves and somebody in Ren and is like that's who I'm going to play (laughs) yeah absolutely what was your rent phase like Flo and who was your character that you latched on to Ah, well, weirdly enough, I, so I was probably like, I don't even know how old I was, but I was, I was like, I want to say that I was like 12, 13 years old when I first heard Seasons of Love. Mm. And it was so weird. I remember my sister learning Seasons of Love on the piano and she left the music out on the piano. I was like, oh, what is this? And she played it. And I was like, oh my God, that's the most amazing music I've ever heard. And I just remember the opening, she played it. And I was like, oh my God, what is that? And I didn't actually know what Rent was, but I listened to Seasons of Love over and over and over again, back on my old iPod, back in the day. <laughs> um, I just replay it. And I was like, I don't know what this musical is about, but I love it. And then as I got older, I was like, oh, it's from Rent. And then probably when I was like 16, like wanting to get stuff for my rep folder, um, I kind of did like a deep dive into like what was in Rent. And obviously Take Me or Leave Me was like, of course, straight into the rep folder. Um, But yeah, and then I kind of, I didn't see like a live version of it until really, really weirdly, they did like a concert version of it with Carrie Ellis in Guildford. Yeah. Where she played, I think she played Maureen. Um, and I remember like hearing the whole the whole album live and being like, this is so amazing, but also this is so intense. Like the mm. plot itself is so deep. And I feel like the music, when you listen to it, like outside of knowing what the story is about, you're like, oh, it's so much fun. Like it's so like rock and, you know, but like when it's actually in context of the show, you're like, this is really deep. This is really heavy. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my intro to Rent. And so were you a Maureen girl? Oh yeah, I wanted to be Maureen. Even though I kept mistaking her for Mimi. I kept being like, I'm going to play Mimi. Then I was like, oh, she doesn't sing Take Me or Leave Me. So I'm not going to play Mimi. <laughs> I want to be Maureen. So. <laughs> I when I think I discovered Bran. I must have been like the place where I used to do um, like all my like acting and singing lessons. I literally used to be there like four days out of the week from the ages of like 11 to 18 in like the kind of first building that we were in it had like a massive rent poster from the movie and I I think I just kind of like you see it in passing and then I think we did seasons of love and choir I think a similar thing where I must have been about 12 or 13 
And then I think I like listened to Seasons of Love on my like iPod. I think it was an iPod Touch. I, I, don't know. Oh, I, I was wasn't that cool I had like an old it wasn't the nano what was it called like the old one the, uh, I, think, I think it was just called iPod Classic yeah well like the brick one or like the it was the brick one yeah, it the was the brick. brick with the red circle it was a limited edition version and it actually it weirdly it weirdly had the signatures of U2 on the back and I was like why is it <laughs> what is so, so random it was definitely it was a U2 limited edition iPod oh absolutely <laughs> thanks Bono <laughs> um, but yeah I think I then I just like listened to the cast album from there and I was obsessed like when I say obsessed I watched that movie I actually just wrote like a thing about being gay um, for like my company's like LGBTQ plus, plus month and I think I like put in a bit where I was talking about coming out to my dad and me being like, oh, did did you ever did you ever think? And he was like, you did watch Red every day. Like, <laughs> like we kind of thought, yeah. <laughs> um, but I just, I just loved it, and I don't think I ever had a character that I I think I always like I I think I always wanted to just be probably like Roger or something because there's not really a female character that is like suited to my cast type. I did hilariously do because I think I just got assigned it when my first year of uni. I did, I had to play Mimi and I did um light my candle and out tonight, but I did it on a horrendous chest infection. Oh no! And, and I came through the door for light my candle, and it was like a it was a swing door, and my scene partner just let the door go by accident, and it whacked me on the head and then so I just made it like a part of the thing and then just continued and then my assessors afterwards were like oh my god we thought you had a concussion (laughs) (laughs) so it was like half concussed half chest infection so it wasn't like I shouldn't be laughing I'm only laughing because I know I've had so many like terrible mishaps on stage where like how is this happening to me right now Oh god. That's that's really interesting you say that, Rosa, because I could really see you playing Joanne. But yeah, I get that. Like, yeah. I just yeah, I just don't think I I don't find Joanne annoying. <laughs> I think I've always rebelled against that. Really? Like, Shut up, Joanne. Yeah. I, I was such a Maureen girl. I was so which interestingly <laughs> enough, nobody told me. I see, I didn't know that I was gay at this point. But then all the characters that I was like, yes, I relate to you so much, was like Maureen, Kelly from Grey's Anatomy. And I was like, somebody should have pointed this out maybe a little bit sooner. Your obsession with Kelly Torres has always been like... Was very intense. A massive red flag. (laughs) Red flag? A rainbow flag. flag. There you go. There we go, yeah. But like... Um, and I think it's, I think it's probably important to say that Rent is absolutely, it's a massive beast. There, I think it's like forty-two songs, in uh, in the kind of finalish version that we know of now. So we are not going to be able to cover everything, but we have picked our kind of favorite bits to talk about, or the kind of bits that we think you guys will be most interested in hearing. Um, but trust us, there is so much more that we wish we could say. Um. And I'm, so please don't scream at us at home. <laughs> I'm sure people maybe. would be like, why have there might be a part two. Maybe. There could be a part two. Rent A, rent A and rent B. Nice. Yeah, rent a, let's rent call B. this rent A. And then <laughs> if this. you guys like it at home, let us know. 
and we're going to do a rent B, but we're going to do it when you least expect it. Yeah. And we're like, bam, we're back with Two rent. years from now, <laughs> the sequel. <laughs> okay. So to talk about Rent, we first must talk about its tortured genius of a creator, Jonathan Larson. So Jonathan Larson was born in 1960 in Mount Vernon, New York, to two Jewish parents, Nanette and Alan Larson. Jonathan was always interested in music and performing, playing the trumpet, tuba and piano and singing in his school's choir and acting in its school's plays. After high school, Jonathan gained a four-year scholarship for acting at the Adelphi University in New York, but stopped performing after he graduated to focus on composing, which he'd begun to show an interest in during his university time. So he used to compose music and scores for student productions, and eventually he co-wrote his first proper musical, which I'm bear with on the name, Sacramorlinatory. Ah, of course. Yes, yeah, of course. With uh, <laughs> David Glenn Armstrong, which was first staged in 1981. The show, which was later renamed Saved, an immoral musical on the moral majority, which I imagine is because people were like, we don't know how to say that. What? (laughs) Sacramorlinatory, I think is. Sacramorlinatory. Very good. If you say it fast, no one will know. Exactly. Sacramorlinatory. Very good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The show would go on to play a four-week showcase at Rusty Storefront Blitz on 42nd Street, which is... I mean, I don't know how good of a theatre that is, but it's such... To be able to be like, we opened on 42nd Street is so exciting. <laughs> uh, oh my God, t- yes, of course. Yeah. 42nd Street. amazing? Oh like, my God. Even if that... I don't know anything about that theatre, but even if it's an absolute dive, like to be able to be like, yeah, we just... Uh, we had a four-week run on uh, on 42nd Street. Yeah. I'm but trying yes. to think of an equivalent over here. But like, um, we're on Shaft Baker Street. Avenue. On <laughs> Baker <laughs> Street. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know why that was the first street that came to my head? 221 yeah, uh, Baker Street. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. Uh, <laughs> my God. <laughs> the two writers would win a writing award from the American Society of Composers, Authors and Publishers for the Brechtian Style Cabaret musical. And a little fun fact, Jonathan's first foray into solo musical writing was actually meant to be a musical adaption of Georgia Orwell's 1984, but he didn't get permission from George Orwell. I, I'm kind of glad that didn't happen because I'm not even sure what a musical version of 1984 would look like. It would, Especially it would be so maybe bleak. Like pop rock as well. I don't know if that would really... I know. It would... I don't know. I can, I can see why George Orwell was like, hard pass. <laughs> absolute hard pass we'll be in touch (laughs) yeah we'll be in touch my my people will call your people (laughs) Um, so he instead went on to create a musical version of his own sci-fi story Superbia which was a show set in the future where cameras and tv dominated the world um and like that's probably at the time was like oh my god we can't even imagine such a world (laughs) and then now it's like yeah Um, for this show, he would win uh, a Grant and the Richard Rogers Production Award, but the show unfortunately never made it to a full run. Jonathan was incredibly upset about this, and it makes sense that his next work would be the utterly devastating and wonderful autobiographical musical monologue, Tick, Tick, Boom. So this show was basically based on the depression that Larson fe- felt after Superbia failed to take off, and it was performed off-Broadway. Um, but shortly after Larson's death, spoiler alert, 
It would go on to be reworked multiple times for multiple productions, including a West End run, and more recently, it was rewritten for the screen by Stephen Levinson for the 2021 movie, directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda and starring Andrew Garfield, who would go on to be nominated for an Academy Award. Have you guys seen Tick, Tick, Boom? The movie? No, I haven't. I have seen the like clips of it, and I do really enjoy... Oh, I can't think of the song name now. The I feel badly ever. What's that one? That was really nice. That was yeah. That was really gorgeous. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's almost as if you've done singing lessons. Oh my god, it's as if you're like a singer or something. <laughs> I am also. I'm. I'm going to put my hands up. I haven't seen it yet, and I feel. I feel really ashamed saying that because I need to see it. I've seen clips of it, as has I think, as most people have. But yeah, I need to watch it. It is so good. Like Andrew Garfield is outstanding in this show. Well, in this film, even. Like you guys, right? We're gonna do an episode on Tick Tick Boom, but I'm gonna make you guys watch it because it's so <laughs> so good. So in Rent 2.0, yeah, we're gonna watch Tick Tick Boom, and then we can revisit this conversation. We can do uh, Rent. Part B with an addendum, tick, tick, boom, part A. There you go. <laughs> Larson was a multifaceted creative, not only writing his own shows, but also performing in musicals and writing music for children's cassettes. Jonathan is, of course, most well known for his posthumous, beloved show, Rent. So let's talk about Rent. In 1988, Jonathan was approached by playwright Billy Aronson to help create a musical version of Puccini's opera La Boheme. The modern kick would be that it was going to be set in their present day New York and, to quote, it would be about poverty, homelessness, spunky gay life, drag queens and punk. The community that Larson lived and breathed in in his Greenwich Village apartment. After working on it for a few years and adapting the title to Rent, which has a duplicate meaning of, do you guys know? No. So Rent as in like renting a place also has a duplicate meaning of I don't it know. means torn apart oh, oh really? i didn't know that yeah so that's why he named rent rent because it means torn apart and also the whole thing about rent <laughs> in the this might be a really stupid question but is that is that in english or is that in a different like i think it might be i think it might be in french wow to be torn apart mm. Yeah, no, and that to, will mean... no, to in English as well, to rent something. To separate into parts with with force or violence. The storm rent the ship to pieces. And that will all make sense once the plot is discussed. <laughs> but it also kind of makes so much sense when you look at like the, the movie poster and the original Broadway poster, how it's all like kind of pieces yeah. stuck yeah, together. Completely. Completely. Oh, that's so clever. I wow. know. Um, <laughs> yeah so I think I don't think the other guy uh, Aronson was too happy with it and then when he was like but it also means torn apart he was like ah uh. um, so Jonathan actually asked Aronson if he could take his concept and make it his own because he just felt like he was on a run with this he described his goal for Rent um, was to bring musical theatre to the MTV generation they eventually agreed that Larson could take the idea but if it ever got to Broadway 
Aronson would be compensated and credited for original concept and additional lyrics, so he would still make some money off of it, which is pretty good. He didn't steal the concept. Larson would go on to write hundreds of songs for the show in the early 90s whilst working as a table server, and the final version would have 42 songs. And when I say final version, we'll take that with a pinch of salt. Rent was played with structural and dramaturgical issues, um, and issues with the running time. And with every stage reading and workshop, it would undergo intense rewrites and major shifting of musical numbers. There's probably around at least 25 songs that were done in the workshop that never made it to the final version, or were rewritten into the show's most popular numbers. In 1994, New York Theatre staged a workshop of Rent starring Anthony Rapp and Daphne Rubin Vega as both Roger and Mimi, respectively. They would both go on to star in the off and on Broadway runs and Rap would go on to star in the 2005 film adaption. The 1996 off-Broadway version would be Rent's finalish form and would go on to gain huge popularity from both critics and audiences alike with fans called with fans called Rent Heads camping outside for hours to try and get access to the $20 rush tickets discounted for the first two rows of the theatre and available oh, by like lottery. That. I know, isn't that so cool? So people would just camp outside because they would do this lottery of tickets that was like $20 and you got like the best seats in the house, but it was done by lottery. What do you think that would be like the equivalent nowadays? Probably those like today, you know, those like raffles that you do for today tickets. But like a show, what would you say? Like, I don't know, maybe maybe Hamilton. Remember remember when Cabaret? Oh yeah, Cabaret. Oh my God, that was so, yeah. (laughs) I remember people doing like Instagram posts being like, I'm in rush tickets. And I was like, you really are desperate. (laughs) That was me. That was me. (laughs) Oh my what can God, I say? Yeah. I got some and I saw the show, so. There you go. Well, there you go. Yeah. Rosa, have you have, have you seen it? Cabaret, oh my God, yeah, I've been twice. It's so good. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it's it's so, so good. good. So good. Yeah, I remember um, Alex, which is Flo and I's friend, he, his Instagram story and his Twitter feed for about a month <laughs> was just, just trying to I get tickets. Like, Shut up. <laughs> I think I had to mute him, so I was like, I cannot see another one of those. But I think he did also get to see the show, which is good. Um, but also, like, I think it's really nice that it's, like, the first two rows as well. Like, the kind of best seats in the house. Yeah. That's, like, really sweet that they just save those for the fans. So, prepare yourselves, guys, for the sad part. Even though Rent would go on to receive critical acclaim and would transfer to Broadway the same year, Larson would never get to see his magnum opus fully realised. The day before the first preview, just after the final dress rehearsal and after his first and only newspaper interview with the New York Times, Jonathan died from an undiagnosed aortic aneurysm, later believed to be a complication of Marfan syndrome. Jonathan's parents and friends gave permission for the show to go ahead and the first preview became a sing-through dedicated to Larson's memory. Larson, who had dedicated his life to amplifying the voices of the unheard, the LGBTQ plus and working class community of New York, died at age 35 in a loft apartment with no heating, and much like the protagonists of Rent, resorted to an illegal wood-burning stove to keep warm in the winter. It's so sad. He would never see the fruits of his relentless pursuit of new and boundless creativity. It's just absolutely devastating. It's so sad. And like, Rent at that time, so that 1996... um, off-Broadway version like it's very close to the rent we have now but I think there were still rewrites that were done afterwards and it's kind of like it because it was plagued with such like he would take it to producers and they would be like 
we love the songs we love the concept we love everything but there's just a lot of like kind of structure issues so like the rent that we see now is fantastic I love it but you can see that some of those were never really kind of never really like tweaked out and mm-hmm. it's it's just such a shame because you just think like oh what like what would the final version like what would been. Jonathan Larson's final version of rent been like yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I think because um, you you mentioned the first preview performance, I think that didn't they sing "Seasons of Love" at the very beginning as like a homage to Jonathan, yeah. right? Like, I don't think that was planned. I think they were like, "No, we're gonna sing this first, and then they did it as like like a kind of like a concert version. But then when it yeah, got so to just did it as like a sing through, yeah. But then, but I think when it got to La Vie Bohème, they were like, no, screw it, we're going to do the actual performance. And I think they danced the last bit, like they actually did the proper oh, performance wow. at the end. Yeah, because I think, I think because the audience were like, oh, this is so great that I think when it reached that song, they were like, okay, we're going to, we're going to do it the way that we've been rehearsing it. That's probably nicer for his memory, I would say then. Yeah. Yeah, but I think, I think with like the audience, they, they, um, they only had his friends and family watching that oh performance my God. I that know which is just it's so it's heartbreaking. Just heartbreaking isn't it yeah absolutely heartbreaking so Rent would go on to win many awards um including four Tony Awards and a Pulitzer uh and many of the original cast members from the workshops and the on-off Broadway productions would go on to star in the 2005 film adaption directed by Chris Columbus including but not limited to, no, I think this is. <laughs> <laughs> including Anthony Rapp, who played Mark, Adam Pascal, who played Roger, Jesse L. Martin, who played Tom Collins, Idina Menzel as Maureen, and Tay Diggs as Benjamin Kaufman III. Um, so those of you that have never seen, heard of Rent, um, no worries. I'm going to, as gracefully as possible, talk it through to you. Um, and also people that do know it, please excuse me, because there's a lot, there's a lot in Rent, and I'm going to try to break it down as much as I possibly can. Um, Basically, the story is about a group of young artists, young people who were living in Lower East Side, Manhattan, in Alphabet City, Um, which actually it's called Alphabet City because of the streets, because they've got Avenue A, Avenue B, Avenue C. Just a little bit of fun fact trivia thrown in there. Um, but yeah, so it's all set in Alphabet City. And it's uh, more importantly, it all takes place under the shadow of the HIV AIDS kind of epidemic that happened. Um, so to the plot, uh, it, we start off by meeting two friends, Mark and Roger. By the way, most of the plot that I'll be describing is basically people, because I think that's the best way to kind of come into it. So Mark and Roger, who we're gonna meet, they're two friends, roommates who live together. Um, Mark is essentially a kind of wannabe filmmaker and Roger is kind of like a wannabe rock star kind of dude. He kind of reminds me of the character from School of Rock. Have you guys seen that movie? Oh, as in like, yes. As in the... So the band that uh, Jack Black's character is part of you know, there's the guy who's like topless. Oh my god, Spider. Name, yeah, he really reminds me of Spider and I don't know why. <laughs> so people at home, just picture that in your mind. That kind of like... Roger cool... is kind of hot, I think. He's, like, he's really sexy. Like, um, I don't know what it is about him. Like he's so brooding and like... Yeah, so yeah. that's kind of... So that's Mark and Roger. 
Um, now people at home, they're like, ooh, I've really got this sexy image in my head. Um, and basically what happens at the very beginning is that um, uh, they, they're being asked to pay rent, which had been previously waived by their landlord uh, from last year. And um, their landlord is a guy called Benny, uh, who used to be a roommate with them, but has now married into kind of a wealthy family, uh, hence why he's not in the same kind of situation that they're in. Now we meet a character called Collins, who we briefly meet for a moment at the very, very beginning. Um, and he's basically a friend of Mark and Roger. He used to be a roommate of Mark um, and he's returning from out of town and basically he's attacked in the street. That's kind of the first thing that we get to know about him. He gets attacked and is basically left for dead. Um, just keep that parked in your mind because we're going to come back to that. So he's outside on the street. Um, <laughs> we then uh, come back to Benny and he basically says to Mark and Roger, hey, if you basically, um, if you agree with your ex-girlfriend Maureen that she's going to stop her protest, then you don't have to pay rent. And that's basically what he agrees with them because uh, he wants to set up a new cyber cafe, which also I completely, <laughs> I like completely went over my head. I was like, that's so random. Like a cyber, <laughs> it also sounds so old fashioned now. Like, yeah, I'm just going to head down to my local cyber cafe. Like um, <laughs> bring those back. Um, so yeah, that's basically the opening of Rent. Um, then we meet a gorgeous character, Angel, uh, who was a drag queen drummer. Uh, who we find out is positive with AIDS and um, they meet Roger, not Roger, sorry, they meet, um, they meet uh, Collins, oh. the guy. So let's backtrack to Collins. Remember that character who was left dead in the street? He comes across Collins and they kind of mutually bond over the fact that they both have AIDS and they also kind of start to fall for each other in that moment. This is also a really common theme of Rent. They kind of like fall for each other quite quickly, like certain yeah. characters. They're like, so I'm really in love with you. Um, <laughs> then we meet another character. I hope you're making a list at home. We then meet another <laughs> character um, called Mimi, who is a nightclub dancer who's addicted to heroin. Um, and she essentially lives below Mark and Roger in the same block of flats. Um, to put into context as well, Mimi and Roger kind of have a thing, like they kind of fall in love. I mean, obviously there's so much more to the story, um, but to put it into context, um, it's kind of hard for them to form a relationship because Roger, uh, his ex-girlfriend committed suicide because she had HIV. Um, and that's kind of, this is like a really, really important theme of the story is kind of that underlying HIV AIDS that, that is like one of the most important parts about the story. We then meet kind of, well, we don't really meet, but we hear of Maureen, who is the ex of Mark. And we find out that Maureen is now dating Joanne. Um, and he finds out that she's, I mean, a lesbian now who, and I think before that he, she wasn't seen as a lesbian. Am I right? So it's a bit of a, uh, a weird one where like watching it, you'd be like, oh, she's bisexual. But right. Jonathan Larson wrote her into the script as a lesbian, very much refers to her as a lesbian. So I think the thing is that she has dated men previously, but she is a lesbian. I think she's also like the insinuation is that that she is quite a sexual person and has cheated on him multiple times. Yes, which we 
then go on to learn about because then Mark is asked by Maureen to go and help her set up for her kind of protest and she isn't there and instead he meets her new girlfriend Joanne and they have a whole scene where they talk about like having her having a hobby of cheating and there's like a fantastic number called Tango Maureen and actually the movie version is really really good because they have this amazing like dance break I feel <laughs> like I'm going off on a tangent um <laughs> as I said there's so much to unpick with this Cut long story short, it gets the protest. There's a riot at the protest and Mark captures the whole protest on video. And he then gets picked up by Buzzline who wants to basically hire him. And he gets a job out of this, uh, um, out of this film. Um, ah, back to the love interest, Roger and Mimi. <laughs> I hope you remember them. Um, there's a whole scene where they're kind of, uh, celebrating I mean there's the the amazing song La Vivo M where they're in this kind of cafe and Roger and Mimi basically essentially find out that they're both HIV positive they both kind of tell each other that they are and their love kind of intensifies because they're like great we can kind of you know the secret's out almost because that was kind of like a big part of the fact of why they didn't yeah Roger had together. like Roger was quite worried about being one I think just opening himself up to someone because yeah his last girlfriend obviously commits suicide, but also he has like the double worry of that he doesn't want to engage in like a romantic and sexual relationship with someone if they, yeah, yeah. And they have that gorgeous song. I should tell you, I love that song. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, back to the story. Now cutting back to another relationship. I hope you remember Maureen, um, who's now going out with Joanne. Obviously, there are moments within the story where Maureen is seen as kind of being really, really flirty. Um, and there's a whole bit uh, where where she's like posing as a lawyer and Joanne's like, oh my God, stop flirting with everyone in the practice. And then randomly Maureen's like, marry me to Joanne. And she's like, okay. And then they have the iconic song, Take Me or Leave Me. Because again, Joanne is like, you're flirting with people at our engagement do. And she's like, no, I'm not. And then they both walk out on each other. So their relationship is kind of like, bam, at the end of that song, <laughs> which is just like, I think what's interesting about Rent is that things move really, really quickly. Like each event so happens quick. yeah. so quickly. Um, so then coming back to Mimi, we then discover that Mimi used to be in a relationship with Benny. And um, Mimi has dinner with Benny to try to change his mind with the whole rent situation and with giving back their stuff. Roger, the sexy guy that we were talking about before, who's in the punk rock band, um, in case you're confused where we are, Roger then finds out about Mimi going for this dinner with Benny and is really upset by the whole thing. And basically Mimi then resumes her kind of drug habit and falls back into this kind of like awful spiral of where she used to be and meanwhile Angel um gets really really sick and eventually I mean this is a bit of a spoiler alert eventually Angel dies which is like a really really devastating part in the story um so then Angel dies and uh the next scene is Angel's funeral where basically within that scene um Roger is like I'm leaving I'm gonna go to Santa Fe and he leaves Mimi and um, there's like, there's a scene where he like, he sold his guitar, he's bought a car and he's like driving through Santa Fe and he's like singing a song called Goodbye Love. 
And then really, really quickly, he's like, oh my God, I still really love Mimi, so I'm going to go back. And then he <laughs> goes back and you're like, okay, cool. So that happens. Um, and essentially between that time, obviously Mimi has like spiraled back into her drug addiction. And when he comes back, um, no one can find where Mimi is. And she's kind of like, she's no longer at her club that she usually works at and like basically all the friends come together and it's like let's try to find Mimi Joanna and Maureen eventually find her on a park bench and they bring her back to the flat and she is literally on the verge of dying I mean I think she does actually die and then she comes back to life and she says to them like I was heading towards this warm white light and I swear Angel was there and she shook me and she says, like, turn around, girlfriend, listen to that boy's song. And then she then comes back to life. So <laughs> not that... to be this, not to be this person, but that is my I love rent. I hate that end bit. It's just I... so random. Like, so like, I don't know why that turn happens. around, girlfriend. She's like, like, no, I know. She should have just died. Like, unfortunately, maybe <laughs> should have died. I hate to say it, but it's just like, oh, but I don't know, maybe. Maybe it's too much though, because when Angel died, and she said, "Don't go towards the light. Turn around, (laughs) girlfriend." I hate that. I mean, it's very American, you know. It's very that actually that actually ties into something that I have to say later on, which is really interesting. But I agree. I feel like Mimi should have just died. As as (laughs) as horrible as that sounds, it's kind of what would have happened so it, it's very true to the story yeah and like so Flo's done an excellent job there because it is the most chaotic show ever and the plot is so hard to like keep track of but so right back at the start of the song uh, start of the song right back at the start of the show Roger is like basically m- lamenting about how he's gonna die and he wants to write like one amazing song before he dies and his song about writing that song one song glory is is amazing he then like the way that he brings Mimi back to life is by singing her like the song that you should have always have written um called uh your eyes and it is so bad it is the worst song ever his song about not being able to write the best song ever is so much better than the song that he sings Oh my god, I know. That that first song he sings, I literally I get goosebumps. Like the opening. Are you talking about one song? One song uh, glory, one, yeah. Yeah. Literally the opening, it sounds like the opening of like a hit eighties like banger. Like it's Yeah, it's just so great. It's such a great song. And his range is incredible. It's such a great song. I'm just guessing though that obviously that song is it I always get it the wrong way around. That song is non-diegetic, right? Meaning that he is singing that song, but that is not he's not aware that he is singing. Yeah. And then the one at the end. And then the Oh Yeah. And then the one at the end started Jessic. So that yeah, that's that's true. He's a terrible songwriter then. So yeah, maybe at the end of it he's just an awful songwriter. (laughs) He's like, I should just quit my day job. Like Your ironically, eyes. the song, ironically, the song that you are not aware you are singing is better than the one that you are currently writing. <laughs> that is the true like, tragedy of Rent. It really is. Like you just, I know it's it's horrible to say, but 
if I was dead, that song would not bring me back to life. No. <laughs> I'd be like, mm, no, I'm going to go towards the light. I'm okay. Now, <laughs> now Tango Maureen, however. <laughs> oh, God. Raise Tango me from Maureen. the dead. <laughs> oh, my God. I love that song. Um, well done, Flo. That was like the best everyone. stop. I feel like it. I need to just lie down after that. It's, just it's like... so confusing. Like, it's very hard, but it's important that we lay that all out so that you know what we're talking about. <laughs> and hopefully, if you're still really confused, just go back, re-listen to it, and write down the names, and then <laughs> hopefully that will help. Because there's just so many characters. I think that's what's also really interesting about Rent as a musical is you know, with like standard musicals, you're like, yeah, there's two main characters. This musical is literally like everyone has such an important role to play. Like everyone in their own right is a main character. Yeah, definitely. And the one that they kind of set up at the start is perhaps the main. So like Mark, he's not really the main, like the, so he has a camera and he's kind of like constantly filming them and he doesn't really have any romantic like relationships throughout the show apart from like his ex-girlfriend Maureen or like any kind of big thing. Like obviously he gets the job and then he quits the job, but it's almost as if like our the main character is actually just like, and the camera is just like a vehicle to be able to view these other characters mm-hmm. and we're kind of on the outside with mark like he's on the other side of the camera you know while like all this is happening so like it's quite interesting that like the protagonist is not really a protagonist yeah so casey what's your favorite song from the show my favorite is definitely take me or leave me <laughs> it's just classic. It, it's such a classic and i feel like everybody just goes through a phase where they're like I'm going to sing this I'm going to perform (laughs) this and I feel like it's in everybody's reps and I don't know about you but that video of the two girls performing it (laughs) and then that one girl slips off stage (laughs) I know exactly I haven't seen this oh I feel like it was such a staple and like in musical theater like nerdville sort of it was two, it's basically two girls. I think it's some sort of like college production or some concert that they're giving. And they both go, guess I'm leaving. I'm gone. And then one of them just slips off stage. <laughs> like, oh my God. Just her character, she must have like caught something. And she just, it's oh awful. No. <laughs> it's absolutely awful. Oh, it breaks my heart every time. But it, it was just such a strong ending. And then to have that, I would just go in on myself completely, but that it, it's it's just a staple for every theatre kid. I feel, um, and it's my favourite because I love Maureen. Um, just I just love her, and I think she's so misunderstood. And I feel <laughs> like they try and villainise her a little bit in the show. And I think Joanne is the villain. Sorry, in my head, I'm like Maureen all the way. Well, this Joanne is what is the villain. this. <laughs> This is what, real like context before this during Tango Maureen. I'm not sure whether it's actually true whether Maureen has cheated or not, because Joanne doesn't seem to know, and then Mark puts that into her head. Oh, absolutely! So Mark is like telling her all this stuff, and then they get to a point where it's like, oh, I can't remember. She cheated. Oh, so she's basically making it up. I I feel like she's just influenced by Mark, like what Mark's Ah. saying. Who is Mark the villain? 
No, I think Mark is definitely <laughs> just telling it like she definitely did cheat on Mark. So right. Yeah, it, it's yeah, so basically so Mark says some stuff where he's like he's kind of like teasing Joanne into thinking that Maureen has cheated. So she's like, has she ever pouted her lips and called you pookie? And then he's like, have you ever doubted a kiss or two? And then Joanne's kind of like realizing and she's like, this is spooky. Did you swoon when she walked through the door? Every time, so be cautious. Did she moon over other boys? More than moon, I'm getting nauseous. And then they have like a funny bit about dancing. And then, so like you can, he's kind of like feeding her this stuff, but it's all stuff that's happened to him. And she's kind of putting two and two together in her brain and coming up with five. And then she's like, she cheated. Oh, yeah. Cheated. So he I feel like though he is meeting his ex's new girlfriend so you wouldn't be <laughs> yeah. like oh it's so nice to meet you yeah it's an awkward <laughs> situation and obviously he fe- they, they both feel uncomfortable and i, I also think... think maureen cheated on mark with joanne yeah and i think yeah. that's probably the oh. main the main thing is that i didn't actually know that he had canonically written her as a lesbian i thought that it was just kind of implied that she was bisexual but that is probably quite important if she did cheat on him with a woman and then has sort of realised that's not what I'm into. I, you know, I'm into women. That is very different, I feel. I don't know, from my point of view, I feel that's different than just going out and cheating for the fun of it. I think just because she's a flirty and very, she's just very sexual and and naturally... I could be wrong as well, but he he's saying like, did she cheat on like he's putting the ideas in her in Joanne's head that she's been cheating with other men. He doesn't yeah. ever say oh. women. And actually I think the times that Joanne's getting annoyed at her for flirting, it does tend to be with men, with women. doesn't it? Oh. I thought it was with I'm women. Not sure. In the I, movie, or maybe I'm wrong. In the movie, the bit where they're in the lawyer's office. I swear she's flirting with a woman, and then on their engagement oh, party, she's flirting with a woman with a woman at like the drinks table. Oh, yeah, okay. because that's the the line that goes into "Take me, leave me." Is there'll always be women in rubber flirting with me? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. classic. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's just kind of the the kind of stacking things together between them and kind of going okay well she's a sexual person she's really flirty um she's cheated on me with you so you know probably she's cheated on you as well and i think mark's a little bit bitter and is obviously trying to put the that experience on joanne as well so maybe he doesn't feel like as inferior that's the way i read into it a little mm. bit anyway so yeah i feel like I feel like Joanne just becomes really insecure and distrustful from that conversation that she has with Mark. And then obviously that sort of leads to the big blowout, which I would say is take me or leave me where all those kind of suspicions are aired and it's essentially an argument. Um, So yeah, Maureen is thought to be like flawed and flirty and all of this. And Joanne kind of gets to the point where she confronts her. Um, whereas I kind of see Take Me or Leave Me as Maureen taking ownership of herself. Like that's with the line of yeah. there always be women in rubber flirting with like it's <laughs> I feel like that's her just being like, Look, this is who I am and Yeah, I, she's really putting it out there that like she is a very sexual person. And yeah. She always has been, always kind of will be, and yeah, take me or leave me. 
Which is why yeah. she's such a great character. Because she's not like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm the way I am. Like, she's like, no, I am who I am. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Also, Joanne is also setting a boundary there, though, where she's like, that's wonderful, but I am not that person, mm-hmm. and I need stability. So it's, it's kind of hard, because, like, obviously we're like, oh, my God, Maureen's fun! <laughs> but, like, <laughs> jo- Joanne's not doing much wrong. No, <laughs> no. True. Uh, but then I feel like the the whole opening, the whole opening of it is Maureen sort of justifying her loyalty and commitment, and she's sort of you know like with all the lines of um, uh, like boys, girls, like flirting with me, I can't help it. Be kind, Baby. don't lose your mind. Yeah, you are the one I choose. Folks would kill to fill your shoes um so be mine don't waste my time like and all the lines are kind of reiterating to joanne like look you are the one i'm with this is like me and you yeah like and like your insecurity is your insecurity yeah like every night who's in your bed like where else would i be i'm there with you so these suspicions are kind of just suspicions yeah but then she says kiss pookie and she's like (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, back yeah. to Tangle Maureen. <laughs> I feel like that like triggers her back into that because that <laughs> yeah. that line is literally what kind of catapults Joanne into her verse. And she's so like, yeah. it like, won't work. I love her <laughs> verse. I love her verse. It's so great. And then it, it, the lyrics are just so conflict, like contrasting because when she's like, I "Look before I leave," I love margins and discipline, and it's so the opposite of what Maureen is. Yeah. There's like no margins, there's no discipline, everything is so, you know, bohemian and kind of. But it's so sexy. Her singing in it, I'm like, it's just so great. Like the riffs, like that was also, that was like one of my first songs where I was like, I can riff. Like obviously, <laughs> like 15 year old Florence trying to riff Rent, but like that was like one of the songs where I was like, I'm going to do this. Like it was a cool song to sing. She's just a really sexy character, like yeah. Maureen in the PVC catsuit. Sexy. Sexy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I thought it was quite interesting, like musically, they're singing in unison quite a lot rather than layering over the top of each other, which Jonathan Larson does a lot in Rent. Mm. There's a lot of layering and overlapping and kind of like staggered entrances. Whereas Take Me or Leave Me has a little bit in, but it's very much like person one, person two, together in unison. And then it's perhaps like the unity of Maureen and Joanne. Like, are they so dissimilar that it really works? Or is it kind of just showing that, you know, this is the... this they're is so different. They're so different. Yeah. It's kind of like what we were talking about last episode in Calamity Jane with I Could Do Without You, where it's that kind of call and response thing where they're both like they're both trying to convince each other of the other's points. So they're taking in turns to speak. So there's not much overlap. But then they come together at the end with that, like, guess I'm leaving. I'm gone type thing. But it's kind of the exact same thing where they're both like, oh, my like in I Could Do Without You, where it's like, we're so different and we really hate each other. And oh, I could do without you. And then it's but it's all just like. I love you. Yeah, <laughs> like, because everything... The subtext is just like, oh, well, we got to be together. And, like, this is exactly why this works, because we challenge each other. And, like, you wouldn't want to be with someone. Like, think how boring a musical theatre song would be if it was just like, oh, I um, I like the same things as you do, 
actually, and we're both really similar. <laughs> actually, yeah. I can. I'm just gonna put it out there. There is a great song from I think it's Barbie Nutcracker. No, Barbie Rapunzel, where she has a song called "I Look Like You," where she meets oh, no. a twin. <laughs> What's it called? Well, is that's... it Barbie? It's uh, it's Barbie and the Princess and the Pauper. Classic. That is a great <laughs> song where she's like, I'm just like you, you're just like me. And it's a great song because they are just like each other. So I'm sorry. Gonna... Yeah, I've... that's me told. <laughs> no, no, but, uh, to, but to, be, to be honest, you are completely right. But that just sprung into my mind when you said that. <laughs> What, Wait, the... I think I know that song. Da, 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 da. I'm just it's like you, you're just like me. Okay, so yeah. guys listening at home, if you want us to cover a Barbie movie, just let us know. Because <laughs> I'd love to I'd love to revisit. I used to love the Barbie and the Nutcracker. That was <gasps> the dress that she comes out in. I was like, I want a dress like that. It's great. I used to watch that all the time when I was younger. Yeah, but the so... cartoons are actually really creepy. Like there's oh, the one, terrifying. I think there's the, I think it is the Swan Lake where the evil woman has like, she has like, a, like a, like a mole rat around her neck as like a <laughs> scarf and like the actual animal is so creepy. Like it's this really Ooh. creepy, like otter thing. It's really scary. Oh God. <laughs> but the, yeah, so the, what I'm trying to say is the sort of no opposition in the music, just the lyrics. Yeah, it kind of like if we if we trust the music to dictate to us like the the true feelings, then they're on the same side. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's just like I said before, just being with someone who was the exact same as you would just be so boring. Yeah, and like also- there's a kind of a reason why people do quite like dramatic relationships. Like it is, <laughs> like obviously not all of them, but like a little bit of like to and fro is quite exciting. Yeah, definitely. Like the whole, I think, and I think Maureen likes that. Like during the whole argument, she's really thriving off it. Like she's so, she's like grinning and is like really yeah. into it. It definitely upsets Joanne more than it upsets yeah. Maureen. Yeah. Maureen's had a million of these fights. <laughs> yeah. Whereas <laughs> yeah. I feel like, I feel like for Joanne, this is possibly her first love. Mm. Whereas I feel think? like, from, yeah, I think so. I think she's quite naive. Especially when it comes to Maureen, and like I think Maureen's so experienced and is sort of like blasé about like you know she's very hippie-ish, isn't she? She's very like love is love, love everybody, and yeah. I think that kind of is a red flag for Joanne. She's like, but it's one person lifetime, you know, and I think yeah. that's what causes the upset between them. Because Joanne's kind of like one foot in that world, one foot out. Like she, she's like a lawyer, so she's kind of, she's kind of a part of. Like I think it's insinuated that like her law firm do quite good stuff, right? Where it's yeah, but you know she's still kind of part of that corporate world, but she has these kind of bohemian ideals. So she's kind of caught between that. Whereas like Maureen is literally like she's straight in that world. Like she's crazy. Like, I think I think it's and it really upsets me because they cut it out of the movie version and I really love the part in the opening of Rent where Joanne's like did you eat don't change the subject subject Maureen, Maureen. yeah I love that bit I, you haven't eaten all day I won't throw up you, you won't, won't throw up. up the digital display didn't break up exactly that's my, my one of my favorite I just bits. love that bit because it's it's 
she's like, what's this? What's the lyric before that? Because uh, it, it changes so rapidly to, did you eat? Don't scream, Maureen. It's me, Joanne, your substitute production manager. Hey, 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 did you eat? Don't change the subject, Maureen. But darling, you haven't eaten all day. You won't throw up. You won't throw up. The digital disla- delay didn't blow up exactly. There may have been one teeny tiny spark. You're not, You're calling, not calling Mark. Mark. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, And I think that's kind of her like putting her foot down as in, I can do this. You only need me. You're not calling Mark. <laughs> like I wonder why so... they cut that from the movie. Because I, I remember when I first watched the movie, I was like, where is Adina Mazel? Like, I was watching it like, <laughs> waiting for you. And then, and then she finally appeared and I was like, there she is. Do you know what I mean? Where is Adina Mazel? <laughs> but like, I was waiting being like, where is it? And it would be nice if they'd like put that in the beginning and like establish that relationship. I don't know, from the beginning. Yeah, the that's what I mean. I feel like that just kind of sums up them completely and the opposition between like the opposition of their personalities and everything and I think it would have been really important and it's like three seconds long you could have just put that in yeah so below yes hit me with your favorite number from Ren well I mean it's probably already quite clear because I mentioned it in my intro into <laughs> how I discovered because guys if you were listening I actually talked about it earlier um my favorite song and it still gives me goosebumps is seasons of love I literally want it on my wedding day I love it so much it's such Aww. a great song like yeah I just think it's such an amazing like universal song that I think anyone could listen to and be like yeah I, I really get the song um, if you haven't listened to it, pause this podcast right now and go listen to it because it's great. Um, and I also feel like it's one of those songs from the musical that like you don't really need any context about the musical. Like you can just listen to it and be like, this is a great song. Uh, well, yeah, it's it's kind of taken on a form, hasn't it? Now where it's like it's almost separate from Rent. It, I think yeah. it's like charted or something like it. Yeah, it's like people know that song, but they wouldn't necessarily know Rent. Well, I I didn't know, but they they've used it um, with World World AIDS Day and AIDS Awareness Month. They use it as like the song, which I think is just so beautiful. Um, but yeah, so Seasons of Love, everybody. Um, the first kind of moment you hear it in the movie is literally like straight, like straight away. Like it's literally the opening song to the movie um, where it's like all the characters are, are on a stage and they're singing it and then the story begins. And I think it's a really nice way to kind of like start the musical. I think it really sets the tone of basically what the musical is about which is love. It's all about love and relationship <laughs> and friends and family and love. Um, so to get into kind of like the music side of it all, it opens with fancy word coming up. It opens with what's called an ostinato, which basically is a piano motif that repeats itself over and over and over again, usually at the same pitch. That's like a really fancy word for it. Um, basically, it's the same tune over and over again. Um, and I really love that they use that as like one of the main driving elements of the song because it adds to that feeling of the song feeling infinite. And it's almost like it creates that feeling of time going by. And they really use that um, later in the musical because they use Seasons of Love um a couple of times later in the musical, most importantly for me, in my mind, is they use it 
I think just before Angel's funeral, they have like a little segment of the song. And I think like uh, that song in particular always makes me cry because it's like, it's that feeling of like, even though Angel has passed, like their soul is still there. And like the love that they found within that group is still there. And it's a never ending cycle of love. And even as time will go on, even as that group of friends pass and there's a new group of friends who maybe take their place, like there will always be that feeling of kind of like, it's, I mean, it's kind of like nature. Like it's that kind of feeling of like, it, it's always going to repeat itself. Um, yeah. It's like a measurement of a human being. Like obviously that's a bit cringe to say, but like those no, are the lyrics. No, no, like, 100%. Life, well, I mean, basically the, the lyrics are asking... I mean, because obviously this, uh, the lyrics obviously also repeat themselves, but predominantly the lyrics are asking, what is the proper way to quantify the value of love? Um, and no, sorry, what is the, what is the proper way to quantify the value of a year in the human life? And the chorus conclude, measure your life in love, um, <laughs> which I love, um, which I love. Oh my God. Guys, you should count how many times I say love when I'm talking about <laughs> this <laughs> song. It's been a lot. Um, <laughs> to, get, <laughs> to get back into the music side of it, though, because if you don't already know, I love getting all geeky with music. Um, the song is written in F major, quite like a standard key. And it's written in 4-4, which is like extremely basic, very just like simple in feel. And for me, I kind of just like it represents kind of like the simplicity of life when you have love. It's that thing of like, it's the cheesy thing of like, all you really need in life is love. Like, it's that old age thing. Like, would you choose like love or money? Most people would say love, right? Um, but the song, like the harmonies and the overlapping is extremely complex. And like the way that, like the stuff they're actually talking about is extremely complex. So they're basically saying that like love in essence is simple on the surface but underneath it, it's extremely complex. And there are so many different ways that you can show people love, whether that's with friends, whether that's with family, lovers, um, which is why I love this song, because it's so universal. And it's so interesting as well, because you're talking about it in like context to the film, where it's the first, it's the opening number. Mm-hmm. But in the original musical, it's actually the opening number to act two. Yeah. Which I think is so... I think I do prefer it that way around personally um, because I think it kind of recontextualizes everything like yeah so after the kind of chaos of the start and we've had like this riot and we've all sung the VOM and it's all like yeah crazy live your life how you want to then it comes back and it's like but all of this is like rooted in like love for a community and love for one another so like yeah absolutely do what the hell you want and care for one another and love each other kind of thing yeah because I also kind of feel like Angel as a character is such an important character to the story and it's like the pivotal moment when Angel dies like Mm. it's such an important moment so I I agree with you I think it's suited at act two because it's basically connecting like the value of their time um measured in I mean measured in love that's the the lyrics with Angel's death like it's so closely connected like at the heart root of the story is their relationship their their relationships with with one another 
and it's like I think the true tragedy of it all is how HIV AIDS like takes those relationships away and how people's lives are affected by that as well within a story so in like 
lots of it in Les Mis where they kind of use that like, tell me quickly what's the story, who saw what and why and when, bum bum bum. And then they, they'll use that a bunch of times to just be like, what's happening right now? We don't need a full song about it, but like, let's move on. Yeah. Um, so as Sondheim says, content dictates form. And this kind of sung through style with these kind of rustles of thieves um, with text. <laughs> You're sounding Obviously. more and more like Bora. Rustles of thieves. Oh, God. Uh, this makes sense because the show is, of course, based on an opera, so it kind of mimics the form. Rent features one of my favourite musical theatre song styles, the extended musical sequence. For those of you who don't know, an extended musical sequence is a style of musical song, as described by writing for musicaltheatre.com as a sequence where dramatic action is too large to be contained solely by the fully structured song at its core. A musical scene, therefore, contains additional musical material before or after the song, is likely to include underscore dialogue and might include variations or reprises of the song. Musical scenes are useful when there are multiple conflicting forces on stage at the same time. So they're saying Think Tonight from West Side Story, but they're not merely crowd scenes. The focus of the musical scene is generally on one or two characters who are working through a problem or confronting a conflict, though there could be multiple characters in action. A musical scene is comprised of wall-to-wall music without break for dialogue, just a lift for a line or two. So that sounds very complex, but basically what we're talking about is a scene where characters are working through kind of separate problems connected by either kind of like theme, location, or the plot itself. As the context or even the location for their woes are similar or the same, it makes sense to kind of pull them together musically through one scene and one song. I love this because when they're done correctly, extended musical sequences, they're so smart because they're essentially like a writer's like greatest tool. So if you've got a show like Brent where there's like multiple <laughs> characters all off on their own subplots and then you've got this horrible big background of like, so you've got Benny and the kind of forced gentrification and the forced rent. So like this is what they're all worried about. But they've also got loads of other subplots going on, romantic and otherwise. So he's clearly found himself a point where he's like, right, we've got lots to resolve, but I want them all there together as a friendship group at the protest. But there's lots of kind of hurdles that need to happen. So like these two sets of characters need to meet. They need to know this backstory. They need to, we need, they need to all have that context for them to be there. So instead of then having like half an hour where we have scenes where these two people meet each other or someone is like confides in the same mark confides in Mimi about what's happened with Maureen they just do it all in one number so it's it's really really clever the number opens with the homeless community vendors and the drug addicts of New York lamenting the incoming of Christmas pointing out the kind of hypocritical capitalist nature of the holiday the bells may be ringing at Saks department store but they're ringing nowhere for them our characters are aligned by location and context. They're going to Maureen's performance to protest Benny and the gentrification of their homes, but they also have their own issues to work through. The sequence sees the main characters escalate their own subplots whilst connecting them lyrically with a nod to Christmas. The lyric that's repeated is, and it's beginning to snow. For the homeless community, it's almost a defeated cry. There's no room for the shelters to take them in, no sleigh bells, no one wants to buy any of their wares. They have no money, it's cold and it's Christmas. Their isolation is further deepened, and guess what? It's beginning to snow. 
Okay, so where are our characters at? Collins and Angel are still enjoying the honeymoon phase of their new relationship, and she buys him a winter coat from a bartering vendor. He tries to proclaim his gratitude, but she simply says, and I love this bit, she says, Kiss me, it's beginning to snow. So cute. It's Christmas for them, despite their poverty and illness, and it's still full of hopeful, childlike joy, much akin to new love. Mark confronts Roger on his rejection of Mimi and his fear of letting someone else into his life who may die before him. She sees Mimi as she crosses the busy marketplace and is perhaps surprised or influenced by the kind of magical nature of snow and uses it as an excuse to talk to her. I should go, hey, it's beginning to snow. Mimi, she's currently being hounded by her old drug dealer who's making a profit from the vulnerable people in the street. After a short confrontation with Roger, he sneers, holds up two baggies of white powder and advertises them to the crowd. And it's beginning to snow, which is kind of oh, cheesy. Very but... good. <laughs> yeah. um, as the song crescendos and the melodies overlap, a multitude of action happens. Mimi meets Mark and is told about Maureen and their tumultuous relationship. Collins and Angel argue with the vendor over his stolen coat from earlier in the show. You know how he gets um, mugged right at the top of the show? Yep. Apparently his jacket's now appeared in a marketplace. Benny stresses over the investors coming to the show and Maureen sets up her stage. The police clash with the homeless community, vendors and drug dealers, a sign of the riot to come. In five short minutes, Larson has set the context and the mood for Maureen's performance so that the audience will understand the upcoming reactions of the crowd and their clashing forces with Benny and the police. He plugs up any plot holes of characters not meeting and sets them all up with the same context that the audience has on relationships and the history between them all. And he does it all infused with the anarchic spirit of Rent anti-establishment anti-big corporation not entirely anti-christmas but for some definitely anti-snow <laughs> which snow <laughs> Very good. but what i love as well about this number is kind of throughout angel is wearing this kind of christmas dress that oh. seems quite odd i think they say that because she has a lot of odd jobs right so he's perhaps insinuated that this is part of one of her odd jobs but I really like how it ties in with these kind of torn apart themes. So for Angel, she's kind of like the glue between this group. She's the in-between. So just in the context of kind of anti-establishment, she she does enjoy money. She is arguably the richest of them because she takes all these odd jobs and she's just had that big payday because... Today this for is you, tomorrow in, for me. Today for you, tomorrow for me, classic. where she does controversially kill a dog. <laughs> Yeah, not so classic. (laughs) Not so classic. That's the only bit that I'm like, why did Angel? But also, isn't the dog Benny's? Yeah, it was Benny's dog or something. Yeah, and Nikita, or Akita, (gasps) Vida. (laughs) (laughs) See, this is what I mean. There's so many like plots within plots within plots. Yeah, it's mental. Um, yeah, so she she kind of arguably enjoys money. She's definitely the richest of them all, but she also enjoys kind of sharing that wealth. So she laps up this kind of spirit of Christmas and she dances on the edge of the establishment just enough to take from the rich and give back to the poor. She's generous. She's our Santa Claus figure. So talking about a little bit of the impact on the LGBTQ plus community after Rent came out, which I think we've discussed a little bit before about how it was so ahead of its time. So, like, its depiction of queer relationships, diversity in the cast for not shying away from, like, topics, you know, AIDS, homelessness, drugs, sex, political protests, poverty. It kind of wasn't afraid to shy away from any of that and kind of went at it full force. 
which was it's like it's quite interesting i suppose that it became such a big hit because it it's almost fairly niche like it's very representative of his own community in greenwich village at one time in like the early 90s like the late 80s or early 90s but it like those themes obviously like the aids epidemic was kind of happening all across america and in the uk so obviously that's kind of why people can relate to it there but even like the the terms of reference and like the yeah like the references are very american and very new york but there's something that is just so universal that kind of speaks to people i guess is like that lgbtq plus community yeah and that it it was on the on the majority was well received but then kind of having to look at it now through a different lens of there were quite a few people that didn't quite like it for for the themes in particular because some people really struggled with the fact that although the musical tackled these you know these hot button topics it never actually looked at the mass homophobia that was caused during the AIDS crisis and the oh. blame that was placed on the LGBTQ plus community um a lot of people also struggled with the fact that the main protagonist being Mark was that it was a cis white straight man in a show that was sort of focused around the you know the underdogs and people that that weren't represented and things like that so to have kind of mark at the at the center front of that people had an issue with that mm. i don't partic- i don't know i don't particularly think that that was done on purpose i think john that coming from jonathan larson i think he's probably put himself into mark a little bit and is kind of writing from his own point of view and you can't you you write what you know, as they say. So that's probably where that's coming from. But I think that's... I see it quite like similar to like yeah, because that that is quite autobiographical, isn't it? It's it's Jonathan Larson as Mark, but it's kind of what we talked about earlier with that the camera that Mark has, he is kind of on the peripheral of that. Yeah, but he uses that as a way to kind of insert himself and as a vehicle for these stories, but. And I can understand why people would be like, oh, you know, it should be, uh, yeah, like, should he be telling that story? But I kind of see it quite similar to, like, Orange is the New Black, where Piper, obviously, is this white female, um, but she's almost the least part, like, the least interesting part of that show. And they kind of use her going into the jail. That's, like, the, the it like, the, the catalyst. Yeah, that's the catalyst to then be able to tell these other stories. Yeah, definitely. I think that was just what some people felt. They also sort of took issue with the the narrative that people with AIDS in the show, the gay characters die and the straight characters get to live. Obviously, the, the gay community being marginalised kind of saw that oh of course the gay character dies and the straight character gets to live and that's the happy ending sort of so i never actually thought about it that that deeply yeah 
But then I suppose it's a hard one because we know the context of the time and even at the time it was written, like there's there's no expectation. Like, of course, at the end of it, only Angel has died, but they all will die. Like, we know yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And they all will die fairly quickly. Like, Mimi's not going to be alive for much longer. So I I guess I just don't see it in that way because it's... I mean, it's pretty amazing to have been on Broadway at the time that it was. Yeah, definitely. Like, pretty astounding that that was, you know... It's like, I think that people very... Like, critics used to refer to it quite horribly as, like, the AIDS musical... Um, yeah. which is just yeah it's just horrible That's so um, weird so ignorant yeah, yeah. but it, it is very like astounding that that would that would make its way onto the stage even in the mid 90s like, well it ran pretty... for 12 years didn't it yeah yeah clearly a massive massive hit i think it was number six in like the longest running show on broadway yeah i think that's right actually Number six. That's weird that you just know that. No, I'm just. I'm sorry. No, I'm just. I'm. I'm trying to picture the list. I haven't looked at it recently, and I knew that Red was up there. You know that off the top of your head. (laughs) It's just random. But yeah, that's very me. Though I always remember like a weird fact. Like it's always a number fact. I'd be like 1984, or like something just something really random. But um, but yes, so. I think that it's had largely a positive impact on the community, from my point of view, anyway. I think it was really nice that those stories were put out there, and especially to show a lesbian relationship. I think a lot of the times when gay relationships are shown in media and things, it usually focuses on men and gay men, and it's only, you know, the last couple of years that, you know, we've got oh, gay women exist you know <laughs> so it was really nice to see that it was it was just way ahead of its time in in regards to kind of making sure that everybody had a little bit of representation and yeah definitely and of course there's going to be bits i mean it was written in like 1991 like of course there are going to be bits that are not going to have aged well but it's kind of at the time it was really it was really left wing it was really progressive it was really forward thinking and stuff that we'll write now that that we think is like oh this is so amazing in 20 years we'll see that as yeah 100 the aspects of that and it's all about intention really and like Jonathan Larson's intention was to kind of showcase and uplift like the stories in his community that he felt weren't being told yeah and like there's you just have you know you have to like honor that I think and just really see the best in that almost yeah I think that's that's where that sort of blurred line was in regards to people going oh but this is you know the the character telling the story is a, a straight white man like man and I think it kind of has to come from that point of view because it wouldn't be right for him to write from any other point of view because that's not his true, yeah. it's not his story to tell he can only tell his story the way he sees it and not you know feign some point of view that he ha- doesn't have um yeah, and i think i feel like i'm really laboring the point here but i really do feel like him setting up mark with that camera is his way of saying this is my view into this world 
like and and kind of not saying this is you know this is verbatim or this is exactly what it is but I'm telling the stories through the lens in which I see them as a straight white man yeah so I think there's something to be kind of a also I don't think Mark Mark doesn't like he doesn't really do much. Yeah. <laughs> like he is mainly. I mean, I mean we kind of talked about the very beginning, but like Mark is just like there. He's just like <laughs> it's the guy that like videos stuff. Everyone else is like the really interesting. It is. He kind of has to be there, doesn't it? Because everything we're watching is essentially part of the documentary for the most part of mm. the show. So he has to be there because he is the one, in essence, showing us that. So he is kind of just there. <laughs> A very passive person. Yeah, and it's it is really nice that it's kind of not he's not overstepping anything in the it's really interesting actually. I saw a fact that was like he doesn't sing or join in melodically at all when he's filming Will I. He's Oh that's interesting. So yeah, for so for people that don't know Will I is a really beautiful song, but it's it is at the kind of HIV AIDS um it's called the Life Group, I think, where it's like a community group that comes together each day and to kind of support one another. But Will I is basically them confronting the the kind of fear of their own illness and, and their ultimate demise. But that sorry, just to set the context for the audience. But that's so interesting. Yeah, so he doesn't he doesn't like join in and sing. Um even though he is there and he is the only one not singing. And it's kind of like he can't, part of it is like he can't relate and it's not his story to tell. So he shouldn't be joining in. And it's, you know, people see it differently, but that's how I see it is that he feels like that part is not his story to tell. He's just there to show what the reality yeah, is to, for these to people. Amplify. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of the gay community. Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> <laughs> I love that that was your segue. That's my segue and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> this is just kind of like a nice little interesting fact about Johnny Larson. So it should come as no surprise that beloved godfather of musical theatre, Stephen Sondheim, was adored by Jonathan Larson. And they kind of struck up a sort of like mentee-mentorship relationship. So Sondheim was incredibly supportive of Larson. And Larson would kind of occasionally send Sondheim's work to kind of provide critical feedback on. Sunday from Tick Tick Boom is, of course, written in homage to Stephen Sondheim. And the kind of original melody and lyrics from Sunday, from Sunday in the Park of George, is kind of used as kind of base and inspiration. So it's almost like a pastiche on that as an homage. It's almost like that's what we did with our name of the podcast. It's almost like it all comes back around to Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> Sunny on the pod. Um, like and subscribe. <laughs> um, Larson found it really difficult to secure producers for his musicals. This could perhaps be down to subject matters uh, not being deemed appropriate um, or due to his Jewish heritage. Um, and Sondheim often wrote letters of recommendation to producers to encourage them to invest in Larson's show because he is just the best person. And RIP, Stephen Sondheim, <laughs> I love you. Uh, and Larson also won the kind of prestigious Stephen Sondheim Award. 
Also, just a small fun fact. I, for like four years, was used to pay a membership for the uh, Stephen Sondheim Society. <laughs> I I can wholeheartedly believe that. I it was really cute. What was I loved it. it. Like, I used... what, what what did you do? You got like a quarterly magazine, and it would have like they would do like interviews if there was like Sondheim revivals with like it's really big. Like it's a really big society. I have a little pin. Um, oh. Is there is so... there like a secret handshake? <laughs> no, it's mainly a lot of older ladies. Oh, right. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. <laughs> but they do like you can. Like, they'll be like, oh, like, when Sunday in the Park with George was meant to be coming over, thank you, COVID, for ruining that. We could have had a live Regent Park. Oh, my God, yes. Ugh. I forgot about that. With Jake Gyllenhaal. Devastating. Um, devastating. Like, they were organizing, like, a group trip with discounted tickets. But you can do, like, <laughs> meetups and stuff. Like, they'll just be, they'll be like, oh, this thing's on. Like, let's all go. But also, like, the magazine was very good, actually. So, girls, we all have one. What is your least favourite song from the musical that you would have to skip? We all have one. Every single musical is always one that you're like, God, I hate this song. Oh, definitely. And thank you to Blythe Montgomery from the Calamity Jane episode for bringing this to our attention. We are now doing this as a segment. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's such a good segment as well. Controversially, as I've stated (laughs) maybe a million times already, I am a Maureen girly, but I'm sorry. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sorry. Over the moon <laughs> is Thank shite. You. Sorry. Okay, so I'm just gonna jump on the back of this. I hate that song, <laughs> and I hate it because it's about five minutes of her like talking, and all you can hear is her being like, <gasps> like taking these really heavy breaths. You're like, come on, Adina. Come on, Adele. Like, it's just... (laughs) (laughs) And then, oh, it's just so chaotic. I'm just like... I do, I hate the bits where she's like... It's just so cringe. It's so cringe. I I just really... I love a song that I could sing along to and that I could be like, you know what? I really want to get up and sing this, but like, (laughs) nobody wants to to hear that. Yeah. In Cyberland, we only drink Diet Coke. It's too much. (laughs) It honestly honestly sounds like a sketch. Like, it sounds like something from, like, SNL. I don't understand. I don't don't get it. It's meant to be silly because she's silly. Like, it's meant to be a bit shit, I think. I think it's supposed to be some sort of political statement, but I'm not sure what statement she is making. In La Vibo MB, they're like, the police want them to move off of Fifth Avenue. But they're not doing it. They're just sitting there mooing. Because remember, you know, at the end, she's like, moo with me. Yeah. Moo. So I think another it's reason why I'm just like, oh, skip. <laughs> <laughs> just skip. <laughs> what about you, Rosa? What, what song would you skip? I I mean, I think I've talked about it earlier, but oh my God, your eyes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Shut up. I know. It is the worst song. I don't understand. Your eyes, like I don't understand. Oh, <laughs> it it annoys me to no end that that is the song that brought her back to life, and it's not one song, Glory. Oh, <laughs> now listeners, this next bit is extremely exciting. This is the bit that I know you've all been waiting for. You've all been waiting on the side through your headphones, thinking, "When is it going to happen?" Don't worry, it's about to happen. 
the magic generator, we have the chance right here, right now to do our own fancy casting. And essentially, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Rosa is going to give us a couple of names, could be musical theatre performers, actors, actresses, TV personalities. So without further ado, we need to find out who have we got today? Who's our number one person we're going to be casting? Oh, okay. Harry Styles. Oh, oh. Roger. Oh, you think Roger? Yeah. yeah, he could do a good one song, Gloria, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna. I was originally gonna say Mark, but then I thought, no, I feel like I can see him doing the little sad, like "Woe is me" sort of. <laughs> He'd be doing like "Light My Candle," like when he's like, uh, "Why don't you forget that stuff? You look like you're 16. <laughs> also, that's a bit of a creepy bit. I we haven't talked about it in "Light My Candle," where he's like, "You look like you're 16, and she's like. I'm not, I'm 19. Oh, yeah. For my age, I was born to be bad. Um, and he's a lot older than her, I think. I think he's like 30. And I think How she is quite young. Too busy rocking out. <laughs> Too busy <laughs> rocking out to the rock musical. Who's our next? Oh, okay, right. good one. Christina Aguilera. Mimi. She is like hands down a Mimi. Yeah. Like Christina Aguilera in the dirty video. Yeah. Ooh, Mimi. Yeah. I imagine Christina Aguilera's out tonight. Oh, <gasps> oh my <laughs> gosh. The rips oh, that, that she would add. So good. Give us one more. <laughs> oh. Okay, this would have to be her when she was like a, a bit younger, I would say. But Emma Thompson. Ooh, I think Joanne. Agreed. I was about to say Joanne. Joanne. Yeah. Yeah, like a kind of like sense and sensibility age. Yeah. Emma Thompson. She'd be a very good Joanne. Because mm-hmm. you need that like grounded person to play Joanne. Yeah, she's yeah, she's very like talks a lot of sense. I feel like Mimi, you have to be kind of childlike. Mm. Maureen, you have to be kind of erratic. And jo- yeah. and Joanne, you need to be like grounded, like black and white. There's no grey area sort of personality. Okay, let's do one more for fun. Oh, okay, Leah Michelle, Maureen. Of course. Yeah. She would be so I mean, I'm I don't surprised really like she hasn't been cast as Maureen yet. That I mean, the fact that she looks so similar to Idina Menzel as well kind of just adds to that. I'm not gonna like, lie, when I when I was younger, I would get really mm-hmm. confused between them. I was that person. <laughs> yeah, but I had the same thing with Shakira and Beyonce, but that's because they sang that duet together. <laughs> Do you know which one I mean? The music video. I was like, who is who? Yeah, Beautiful Liar. Beautiful Liar, absolutely. <laughs> because independently of that music video, they look nothing alike. In that they music video... They look so similar. Twins. Yeah. That's why I was like... Sisters. Care? I was so confused. Care? Care? <laughs> I can't actually believe that we managed to get a full female cast for Rent from them. <laughs> from the name generator. Oh my god. Oh, okay, no, that would be great. Can we make like a petition 
that we need mm-hmm. to have like an all female version of Rent. <laughs> well, I mean, it's going to be Emma Thompson and <laughs> yeah, maybe um, with Michelle a few Office, different, maybe a few different, <laughs> you know, names. Look, I can't. And then Christina Aguilera <laughs> just thrown in. Yeah, just get her. Leah, to come over. Leah Michelle may not be the easiest to work with. To quote Glee, she may be difficult, but boy, can she sing! <laughs> yeah, oh I think God. she would. I I just think Manny Bryce. I just think she would body that role. That'd be so good. She would be. Yeah, she'd be amazing. Right, guys. Well, it's been an absolutely wild ride. It's been a journey. With- rent it's been uh i feel torn apart <gasps> that's very good did you know that rent has two meanings <laughs> <laughs> Dude, i feel like i can't believe you guys didn't know that i feel like that's like the theater kid like fun fact everyone's like did you, did you know that rent also means torn apart because they're torn apart <laughs> just a reminder that you can apply for our guest performer slot by clicking on our link tree in our podcast description below and filling in our short application form it's really an open process and after you apply, we'll keep you in our talent pool and reach out if we're covering a show we think you'd sound great covering a song from. So what are you waiting for? Click the link tree and apply for the pod. And just like that, we've come to a close. Rent is done. Thank you so, so much for listening. We've been one song glory. <laughs> Bye. Bye.